Hello, 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 and welcome back to Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Gallup, and thank you so much for allowing me some extra time to write and release this episode. This this really was the strangest thing. I absolutely stalled in writing this last episode on Denby, and I, I couldn't find the motivation. I didn't want to read on it, and I found myself taking a step back and asking myself why. You know, why after a month of research did I suddenly feel blocked whenever I thought about writing? And I think it comes down to the fact that I don't feel ready yet to leave Denby. The hospital itself is so incredibly beautiful, even in its decay. And I know there are so many stories left to be told, and I just don't have time to discuss them all. Several of you who live in and around Denby have also written to me and offered to help, and I appreciate that so much. So <laughs> that sort of explains some of the delay in the release of this episode. If you've enjoyed this series as much as I have, I encourage you to find out more about the North Wales Hospital. Claude Wen has new books coming out, hopefully soon, on the history of the hospital, so be looking for those. His name is spelled C-L-W-Y-D-W-Y-N-N-E. It, it sort of reminds me of a joke one of my French instructors had when I lived in France who always said, oh, it's spelled just like it sounds. <laughs> I, think the, I think the same thing can be said about Welsh. So anyway, all that to say, I appreciate the messages and support I've gotten from folks in Wales throughout the series. And thank you so much for trusting me with a sliver of your local history. Today, we're going to switch gears a bit and talk about the enduring legends and lore and spooky stories that surround the hospital. All of my sources will be listed in the episode transcript. So come on in, get comfortable as we go behind the walls of Denby Asylum. Most old psych hospitals have ghost stories. There's this extra spooktacular element about them mostly because of the very real horrors and mistreatments that happened there. And of course, Denby is no exception. And I want to make it very clear that my intent is not to demonize or misrepresent the patients who lived and died at the hospital. I'm just curious what stories remain. And of course, those stories are often filtered through the lens of folks who don't know or don't understand what the patients went through. I will, however, bring in some stories from Peter Glenn, who worked as a nurse at North Wales Hospital. So there will be some insight into how people who knew the hospital well interpret their spooky experiences. I know at the hospital where I work, there's one unit that's said to be haunted. And several of my colleagues have talked about the inexplicable sounds or feelings they've had there. So who am I to say what someone else has seen or experienced? I don't experience hallucinations, but I know they're real because my patients show evidence of them. So that's my disclaimer on these stories. I I've mentioned in previous Legends and Lore episodes that I'm a skeptic regarding the paranormal, but I hope that doesn't cloud too much of the stories here. The history of the hauntings at Denby Asylum actually go back much further than the construction of the hospital in 1848. In fact, we need to go all the way back to 1594. This is the story 
of Gwen Ferch Ellis, as written by James McCarthy for Wales Online in 2017. In 1594, Gwen Ferchelis was a three times married woman making her living weaving cloth and providing cures for sick animals. She was proud of her expertise as a healer. Taught by her sister, she used charms to help people. The 42-year-old did not charge for her help, but was paid in kind with food and wool. But when a charm was found at Glodeith in the home of upper-class Thomas Mostyn, her life changed forever. Gwen, a woman who had already lost two husbands and a sister, was to become the first person hanged in Wales for witchcraft. In the 16th and 17th centuries, Gwen's belief system was that most people was what most people understood by the word witch in Wales. Quote, the term witch has meant many things to many people over the years, end quote. Dr. Kathleen Olson of the University of Wales at Bangor told the BBC. But for most of the Middle Ages, the word really meant the local healer, someone who made poultices and medicines and perhaps had charms or spells for healing cattle and other farm animals. It was in eight, uh, excuse me, 1563 that witchcraft became a crime punishable by death. And the first time that statute was used in Wales was 31 years later for Gwen Fergelis of Betis, Denbyshire. She was a woman with a reputation for being a healer, but someone who could inflict harm said Richard Sudgett, author of A History of Magic and Witchcraft in Wales. Her problem was she crossed a social boundary and got mixed up with the local gentry. Crossing that boundary sealed her fate. She was prosecuted and found guilty and executed. If she had kept to herself, she would have escaped prosecution. Gwen's offense was to leave a charm, a kind of spell in Mostyn's home in the parlor. The charm was a kind of poem written backwards, which was deemed a sign it was intended to harm Mostyn and his family. They're funny things, charms. They can be protective, but they can be interpreted in other ways, said Richard. Everything to do with witchcraft was ambiguous. Gwen is thought to have left it there because of her association with Jane Conway of Marl Hall in Conway. It's thought Jane had, had had a quarrel with Mostyn, Richard said. Gwen's friends advised her to run. Adamant she had done nothing wrong, she refused and was arrested by William Hughes, Bishop of St. Asaph, who took her for questioning at Flint Castle. Records show that during interviews, she admitted she'd used charms to help people, and she recited one. Quote, in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit of God, and the three Marys, and the three consecrated altars, and the blessed Son of Grace, and by the stones and by the herbs to which the Son of Grace bestowed their virtue, in order that they should defend thee, the sinner who suffered adversity as Christ defended. End quote. Her late sister Elizabeth had taught her how to do it, she said. Quote, Diverse that had come into me did believe I could help them, and so I believed likewise, end quote, she is reported to have said. Smelling blood, investigators were sent to Gwen's home. Inside, they found a bell without its clapper, and there was a Christ figure showing him rising from the dead. 
She said they had been given to her by her sister, but it was enough to link her to the old ways of the Catholic Church and raise suspicions further. Like the Scottish witches, she was not overawed by the bishop, Richard said. She stood up for herself, and it is clear from the evidence she was proud of her work as a healer. Her association with the Conways added fuel to the fire. The suspect admitted receiving two copies of St. John's Gospel from Jane Conway and to having once spent the night at Glodaeth when Thomas Mostyn was away. But she denied leaving the charm. In prison, she was quizzed further. It was suggested that Conway had employed her to leave the charm at Mostyn's home because of their quarrel. Despite insisting she was innocent, magistrates ordered witnesses to be gathered. Five men and two women came forward with accusations of witchcraft for her trial in October 1594. Various people said she had harmed them, Richard said. The people gathered in one of the parish churches, and the JPs took down the evidence against her. The most serious allegation came from 60-year-old widow Elinfer Richard of Chanelian uh, in Rose. She claimed Glenn had set, sent her son mad and was responsible for his death. Others said Gwen was vengeful. Gruthef Aphus of Betis said she had made her sick brother, David Aphus, worse by charming him with salt. Bailiff William Gruffith of Williams of Betis accused her of putting a demon fly in his drink. He also said... Glandernog, born Gwen, was responsible for a friend's broken arm and bewitching his wife. She had lost the use of her arms and legs. The people gathered in one of the parish churches, and the JPs took down the evidence against her, Richard said. She was found guilty, and at 42 years old, she was hanged. It would have been appalling, Richard said. If it went to a grand jury, they would say whether there was a case to answer— if there were a trial, it would be pretty quick and weighted against the person accused. Oddly, the discovery of the written charm at Glodeath faded from the investigation. Often there was little opportunity for the accused to interrogate the witnesses, Richard said. Quite a lot of weight was given to written evidence, which was taken beforehand. If you were found guilty of witchcraft, there was no scope for leniency. Death by hanging was the penalty laid down by statute. In all, there were five executions for witchcraft in Wales. The craze for persecuting witches that it took hold across Europe, where 100,000 people were executed in the 16th and 17th centuries, largely missed Wales. Here, most women were released after a brief period in prison when the case against them collapsed. However, in 1622, in Caer Naur sorry, Rider Rap Evan, a yeoman, Lori Fechevin, and Wedo Agnes Fechevin were indicted for felonious witchcraft. It was claimed that they were responsible for the death of uh, Margaret Hughes of Randerdog, whoops, Randerdog, and the witching of Mary Hughes of Randerdog. They pleaded not guilty, but were found, but were found guilty and hanged. In 1655, on Anglesley, Margaret Fech Richard was indicted for bewitching Glenn, a wife of Owen Meredith. It was said she fell sick and died at the end of December. The defendant pleaded not guilty, but she was found guilty and sent to her death. 
In Wales, the number was tiny compared to elsewhere. There were fewer than 40 cases here. Most of the cases occur in the 17th century, Richard said. Ten people are accused during the Civil War. Afterwards, it was a time of great alarm and disorder. Ten people are accused between 1655 and 1658. There were a string of prosecutions in the 1690s. The last trial was in 1694 in Cardiganshire, which resulted in an acquittal, said Richard. The courts were full up with felons of a different sort, like cattle thieves. There was not much room for the prosecution of witches. The belief system was there, that there was a court system, but the whole thing never set a light. It could have been that there were witches in Wales, but prosecuting witches was a luxury. And that's the end of McCarthy's article. So just to put the geography in perspective to the best of my abilities, all of these alleged witches were found within about an hour and a half's drive from Denby. They were said to have been taken to Denby and hanged in the town square. According to lore, that's the same land the asylum was later built upon. Some say the witches cursed the land and their spirits continue to haunt the area. Or do they? (laughs) In 2008, the TV show Most Haunted came to the hospital for a week-long ghost hunt. Uh, Sadly, I wasn't able to watch this because either it wasn't available outside the UK um, or just not available in the US. But the show stirred up plenty of local ire that I was able to read about it from several newspaper articles. One 2008 article from the Daily Post described the most haunted series, which was given the title Village of the Damned, as, quote, a seven-day vigil featuring psychic mediums, scientific experiments, and Ouija board seances that were aired every night. The show claims it will raise the dead, speak to ghosts which inhabit the cursed land, and conjure up the spirits of three witches said to have been executed in the area. The special was also said to have carried out experiments by strapping up crew members in straitjackets in padded cells during the seances. And I'm sorry, but why? What's the point of putting someone in a straitjacket and padded cell for a seance? If they wanted to do it to get a better sense of how patients were regularly restrained at the hospital, that's one thing. But in an attempt to summon spirits? Come on. I can certainly appreciate why locals, especially those who had connections to the hospital, would be appalled by the insensitive nature. Even the title of the series, Village of the Damned, insinuates that patients were among those who were damned. And Daily episodes building up to a televised exorcism? I don't know. It just seems like a little bit much. And the last thing I want to say about the Most Haunted episode is that they invited Dr. Kieran O'Keefe, a parapsychologist, to investigate stories about black magic, witches, spells, curses, and ritual cleansing at the hospital. I don't really care about all that, but I was interested in this title of parapsychologist. This was a new term to me. So immediately I assumed that this was somebody who claimed expertise in paranormal activities without any advanced training in psychology. So I looked into what parapsychology is and who Dr. O'Keefe is, 
And I'll admit, I was surprised by the results. Parapsychologists are, in fact, trained psychologists. Their primary interests lie in um, sort of the periphery of psychologists, excuse me, of psychology as a science. But like most research in the field, they're hoping to find evidence of how the mind responds to certain phenomena. The difference is that instead of looking into, you know, how and why a person responds to something like um, auditory hallucinations, parapsychologists look into the how and why a person responds to various psychic phenomena. So to give you some examples, these would include how and why people believe they receive premonitions about the future, whether in a vision or a dream, uh, telepathy and communicating from mind to mind, ESP or perceptions of a sixth sense, and out-of-body experiences. So again, these ideas live on the fringe of science because they cannot be seen or heard. But many of my patients hear voices I don't hear. Does that mean those voices don't exist? Not necessarily. In the case of Dr. O'Keefe, his foray into parapsychology actually began through forensic psychology. He specialized in working with juvenile offenders and preventing recidivism. Somehow he segued into the paranormal and became interested in apparitions and hauntings. Today, Dr. O'Keefe is a researcher, instructor, and the head of social, excuse me, head of the School of Human and Social Sciences at Buckinghamshire New University. As I mentioned, uh, he was involved in the Most Haunted series on Denby in 2008. The Most Haunted series was certainly not the only crew of ghost hunters to visit the hospital. In January 2009, a crew of paranormal investigators went to Denby in search of ghosts or spirits of former patients and staff. Lorraine and Wayne from the website Totally Haunted visited Denby twice, in January 2009 and in June 2013. During their 2009 visit, which is recorded on their website Totally Haunted, uh, probably .co.uk, but in my brain, it's always been .co.uk. So <laughs> blanket apologies for my ignorance. Uh, throughout their filming, they claimed to hear the voices of a man and a woman. They replayed the sound several times, but it sounds like white noise and maybe a groan to me. They hear a door slamming nearby, even after they check to make sure the door is locked and secured. They further claim to hear the sounds of tapping, groaning, footsteps nearby, and see a shadow that was not picked up by the camera. As they pass through the old hospital, they remark that the floors felt spongy. And honestly, I was more worried about their safety, about the, the poor structure of the building, than harm from a spirit. When Wayne fell through a spot in the floor, it confirmed my concern for them that the main danger to them was the building itself, not whatever entities may be lurking there. At one point, they were actually lost in the hospital, not knowing how to get back to a lower floor. And Lorraine is heard at one point saying, I think we have to go up in order to go down. And, and I was worried they'd be lost forever. They had hoped to go to the morgue on that trip, but accidentally passed by it without knowing until after they left and reviewed their footage. They returned to the old hospital in June 2013 and noticed that the floors in some area were in worse condition, and in other areas where they had walked only four years earlier, the floor was entirely gone. 
During both visits, Lorraine and Wayne bought, uh, brought a K2 meter, which is a sort of gauge for detecting spikes in the electromagnetic field. They're commonly used by paranormal investigators to sense whether there's been a change in the energy around them. The presence or sound of a spirit or ghost is supposed to be detected in those devices. So throughout the videos, the investigators can be heard attempting to summon the spirits in the hospital. If you were a patient or worked here, please make a sound. Can you copy me? Can you do that? If anyone is here, can you make a sound? And I couldn't help but wonder, if I died and my spirit returned to my place of employment, that sounds like a pretty miserable way to spend the afterlife. Would I be expected to continue working as I had done in life? And worst of all, then I'd have to tend not only to my spirit patients, but also to nosy and disruptive living people who wanted me to make a sound. Police. I do not have time for that. I have spirit reports to write or whatever kind of reports I hope I don't have to write in the afterlife. So let me make it clear. I do not want to be working in the afterlife. I want to rest. Ideally, I'd like to rest on a beautiful beach somewhere and not have anyone, least of all paranormal investigators, bothering me. Thank you very much. <laughs> anyway, the investigators can then be heard attempting to catch the spirit's attention. Lorraine asks that someone knock or stomp on something. Instead, she and Wayne hear laughter and the K2 meter spikes, indicating a shift in energy. They try to coax the spirit to laugh again. Instead, they capture what they believe to be a male voice saying, piss off. <laughs> and even though they repeated the clip a couple times, I couldn't hear it. It just sounded like white noise to me. Maybe you'll be able to hear it more clearly than I could. But regardless, if a spirit did, in fact, tell them to piss off, the investigators didn't get the message. They continued to call out, but no one responded. And soon they, they ended their investigation due to inactivity. Again, I can see myself <laughs> as the wily ghost telling everyone to hush up. If we just stay quiet, they'll get bored and leave. And that's what happened. Lorraine and Wayne ended up leaving disappointed in their lack of paranormal evidence. If you go to their website, totallyhaunted.co.uk, you can decide for yourself what you think they may have heard or seen. I think it would be fitting to end this series on the North Wales Hospital with stories from someone who actually worked there. Peter Glenn began working at the North Wales Hospital in 1975 when he was only 16 years old. He started as a cadet nurse and then at 18 became a nursing assistant and finally became a staff nurse. He said he spent one year on the day shift and then 13 years on the night shift. The following stories he claims are entirely true. He knows because he was either there or was told by older staff members who had experienced them. So the first story is less paranormal and more reminiscent of Dr. Cotton from Trenton Psychiatric Hospital. The story is called The Heart of Death. Between male and female Gwynvrin lie four rooms long abandoned. One housed water therapy, now banned throughout psychiatry. Another was a small surgical unit for leucotomy. Operations were carried out on site until 1948, after which future interventions were undertaken in Liverpool. 
A third room acted as a staff clinic, and it was here I went for my medical in 1974. Whilst waiting for Mr. Ellis, the charge nurse, to come in, I noticed a door that was padlocked. It was strange, though, as this door had not only been secured, but was completely sealed around the side with white-painted cement. As I inspected the padlock, the old charge nurse came into the room and coughed. The man was stout with a shock of white hair. He was wearing a crisp white coat with dark blue epaulettes. On each epaulette were three stars. We don't go in there, he said enigmatically. I dropped hold of the padlock and asked, What's in there, sir? Nothing for you to worry about. It used to be... His voice trailed off. He straightened himself and said, It's known as the fourth room, psychotherapy. It's in this room where our story plays out. Dr. Frank Jones was feeling pleased with himself. It had been a very good week for the medical superintendent of the North Wales Hospital. The exhibition of the new art of psychology at the Countess Hospital in Chester had opened his eyes to new ways of attracting practitioners, therapies, and indeed funds to Denby. Settling down behind his desk, Dr. Frank, as he was known, began writing out a newspaper advertisement for a psychologist. For Jones, the most enjoyable part of his two days in Chester had been the lecture by Herman Hayter, and further to this, the demonstrations by the Hungarians, where he seemed to be able to read and change minds in a matter of minutes. After this particular presentation, Frank had heard his fellow medics talk of mind tricks and tomfoolery, but Dr. Frank wasn't so sure. Dr. Jones paused his writing and looked at his latest prize, the Claude and Vale Bowling Singles Trophy, won that very week on the green at St. Asaph. His chest filled with pride, and he could not help himself but lay down his ink pen and walk over to the cabinet and pick it up for the fifth time that day. With a sign, he drew himself back to the present. He finished his writings, signed it, addressed and sealed the envelope, and called out for his secretary, Mrs. Jones. Handing it to her, she in turn took it to the central offices, where a porter could be found and instructed him to catch the five o'clock post. The mind is very strange. It can play tricks. It refuses to believe what it should believe, and it believes things it shouldn't. I can even make the body do, it can even make the body do things, some things for good, oftentimes not so good. In 1928, an early student of psychology pulled up at the impressive gates of the North Wales Asylum in Denby. Back then, psychology was a new art. It was unknown and hardly practiced. It was becoming popular on the continent, but was shunned by most here in Great Britain. It had edged its way into the mainstream, courtesy of a newfound belief in spiritualism after the Great War. This caused some to wonder if spirit itself could be identified and therefore treated if need be. The old queen surgeon, F.H.T. de Villiers, wrote that, quote, the new science of psychology, if not carefully understood, can lead to the most dreadful of circumstances, end quote. Having trained in some of the top institutions in Europe, including Vienna, Mr. Bartholomew Balance, MRCP, was keen to secure a position back in Britain. 
Bartholomew's uncle, the late D.W. Balance, had studied with Dr. Frank Jones, uh, the Denby Asylum Medical Superintendent, in both Cambridge and Dublin universities. Dr. Balance was an author, historian, adventurer, and lecturer back in the 1890s, responsible for such words as Bonnie Island's Fruits, Apple Tree Plantations of India, and the Damascan Cave Baths. He died in 1903 without issue. The inheritance of his books went to Bart, along with his enthusiasm and a small farm estate in Hertfordshire. Bartholomew had now arrived at Denby, hoping to secure a position at the North Wales Asylum, and presented his credentials and qualifications gained overseas to Dr. Frank. Qualifications gained beyond Dover were generally considered worthless at best and dangerous at worst. Dr. Jones took the letters of introduction, along with the paperwork presented by Mr. Balance, and put them in a drawer where they wouldn't be disturbed. Dear Bart, your uncle would be so proud, and I am delighted to offer you a position here. This is a modern hospital now, and we need bright young men like yourself. Welcome. See Mrs. Jones for your apartment key and whatever else you need. A quick interruption here, just to remind you that Bartholomew Balance is a student of psychology, not yet a doctor. Dr. Frank Jones then sent a message to Mrs. Mr. Morris Hughes in water therapy on the Gwynvrin site, asking that he make space for a small clinic that Bart Balance could work from. Bart believed that the human mind, housed as it was in the physical organ of the brain, could control all workings of the human body. His tutors overseas taught that if you take away the physical symptoms of mental illness, the illness itself simply evaporates. Bart was now bringing this thesis to the United Kingdom and was keen to get started to prove his theory. His mantra was, if you can feel it, you can heal it. Over the next few weeks, Bartholomew introduced his practices into the hospital. The wards were initially reluctant to commit any of their patients to him, but slowly they came. Those that water treatment had failed, ones that electric therapy had worsened. This was the new age of clean treatments, they said, so Bart now had his opportunity to work with the worst that Denby could offer up. Patients were left alone with Mr. Balance, something that attendants were not happy with, but were forced to comply on the instructions from the medical superintendent. Balance simply must be allowed to carry out his work undisturbed. Some female nurses passing by on the way to luncheon in the nurse's home spoke of strange music and chimes emanating from the new clinic. The next day, engineers were summoned and the clinic room was made soundproof. It is important, stated Balance in his request letter, that my patients be undisturbed by outside influences such as noise or unnecessary light. Parcels and then boxes of equipment began to arrive. One was opened by accident, and this caused Balance to scream abuse at the porter who delivered it. A cloud of suspicion now surrounded Denby's newest and strangest physician. There were more concerns raised when Balance himself escorted a patient back to his parent ward. This man had attempted homicide against a vicar. And alarms were raised when another was sent back to the ward unescorted. Some attendant staff said that Balance was deranged, but others said he was testing his cure. 
But as long as Balance had the support of the medical superintendent, things would continue and he had free reign. As for the results of his therapy, there may have been some success, or maybe the charge of emphasis, change of emphasis created a temporary halt to these distressing mental conditions. It was too early in the century to tell, and all paperwork was subsequently lost or destroyed. On December 18th, 1928, Bartholomew treated his final patient. The referring letter read, Thank you for agreeing to see Mr. Douglas C. Morgan. A severe neurosis blights him. The condition is deteriorating for no evident reason. Dr. H. Jacob Gusson, physician, male reception ward. Morgan had arrived in the hospital from Scotland just before the holidays were about to begin. He was diagnosed with a severe nervous neurosis, which made his body shake and his heart pump and his skin sweat profusely. Bartholomew settled his patient down into a chair and dismissed the accompanying attendant. He went to the desk and opened a drawer. Out of it, he took a parcel which had arrived that morning from Holland. It was the piece of equipment he had been saving his money to purchase, the Utrecht echocardiogramophone. Balance explained to the distressed Scotsman that he would reduce the heartbeat and therapy and thereby affect the cure. The psychologist wound up the small piece of technology and set it to work. The equipment played into the room the sound of a beating heart. Balance turned the volume to medium. The theory, Morgan, he said, is to play this beating heart sound continuously, and your mind and spirit will absorb the sound, and your own heart will eventually match the beat. And Balance gave a little laugh. (laughs) Morgan seemed oblivious and shook in fear and distress, not, not from the treatment, but as part of his mental illness. By reducing the beat, we will reduce the symptom and affect the cure, he continued. The process is called holism, Balance smiled. I created the term. A steady heartbeat resounded around the room from the echo machine, and Morgan twitched nervously but seemed more aware of his surroundings. Balance held the wrist of his patient, recording the radial pulse. After a moment, he walked to the echo machine and turned it slowly to full volume. A steady, rhythmic heartbeat filled the encapsulated room. Sometime later, a young attendant was passing by the clinic on his way to water therapy. He thought he saw what looked like an arm at the window and then a face. The mouth seemed to be yelling, yet there was no sound. The attendant paused. He knew all about Balance's temper tantrums. With a shrug, he moved on. He looked back, but it had begun to snow and the attendant hurried onwards. Only later was the full tragedy revealed. Three burly attendants burst the door open and found both men, Morgan and his therapist Balance, stone dead with a stricken look of horror on their faces, their hands clutching at their chests. All around was the booming sound of throbbing heartbeat of the echocardiogramophone. The inquest resolved, B. Balance Esquire, cause of death, weak heart. Within six months, everything was forgotten. The clinic was stripped of its soundproofing. 
all paperwork was burned. The equipment was carefully buried by the new cricket field. All evidence that Mr. Bartholomew Balance was ever at the North Wales Asylum was eviscerated. Dr. Frank Jones, medical superintendent, sat at his desk, pen in hand, and thought for a moment. He then began to write, quote, Dear Mr. Sumaterian, thank you for your query regarding the position of psychologist at the North Wales Asylum. Unfortunately, we have no vacancy at the present time, nor are we likely to have a vacancy within the foreseeable future. Yours, Frank Jones, medical superintendent. End quote. The good doctor then unlocked a drawer and took out some papers. Scanning them quickly, he grunted and lit a match, holding it to the corner of the papers. Once fully alight, Jones fed, him, fed them into the fire in the corner of his office. He stared as the letters of introduction of Bart Balance turned to ash. Mr. Ellis finished wrapping up the rubber cuff of the sphygmoma, I can't say this word, sphygmomanometer around my upper arm. He squeezed on the inflator and I felt my arm being squeezed very tightly. The charge nurse pressed a stethoscope onto my arm as he really released the pressure and he listened for the systolic and diastolic beats of my heart. I felt the pulse in my arm. It was strong and steady. After a moment, he grunted. Very good. I think we can safely say you have passed the medical. Go back to the training school now. And the old man tidied away his equipment. I made my way down Gwynvrin Hill toward the school, and I reported to Sister Lynn, who was in charge of the cadets. As I lay in bed that evening, something felt strange. I could still feel the pulse in my arm, and as I closed my eyes, I thought I heard it. It was the slow, steady beating of a heart. Its rhythm was different to my own. Mm, there's so much in that story that bothers me. And it's so creepy and disturbing. You know, the, the patients being taken behind closed doors with a clinician, the soundproofing of the room, the utter lack of supervision, the experimental and non-evidence-based treatments, it's all awful. But what I also realized as I read through it again, was that if this story is indeed true, the records of Bartholomew Balance being at the hospital must have been carefully erased and forgotten. Remember that in episode 31, I said that the first psychologist hired in 1944 was Dr. Martha Vider. Bartho Bartholomew Balance was allegedly hired in 1928. So it wasn't until 16 years later and after Dr. Frank Jones retired in 1940, that another psychologist was hired. That's interesting. What I do appreciate about this story is that there did seem to be many people who recognized the abuses of power that were occurring and attempted to intervene. But if people in places of power and privilege aren't reacting, it's very difficult to affect any sort of change. The next story is a mystery. I would love to know what you think about this one. This story is called Footprints to Nowhere. If there are to be ghosts anywhere, you would expect them to be in old asylums and mental hospitals. In 1983, I had a very strange experience, which I will relate now. It's a night duty story. 
I had been on nights a couple of years and had become part of the furniture, so to speak. I found myself on the rounds as part of the nursing office backup team responsible for overseeing that the wards ran smoothly during the dark hours. I was responsible for relieving staff for breaks and responding to any and all emergencies that cropped up during the night. It was a winter's night, and I hear the bell of the clock chime two o'clock. I had been helping to admit a patient onto the, onto the Trevan ward and was now taking some paperwork to the Porter's Lodge, the switchboard. A nursing officer, Mike Maloney, was there talking to the telephonist, Moore. It had been snowing during the evening, and it was one of those nights where there was not a breath of wind. Mike and I went outside onto the front step for a smoke and enjoyed the complete blanket of silence along with the perfect carpet of snow. And yet when we looked down, we saw a set of footprints. These footprints led from the front door, down the steps, and moved off to the right towards Brynhevern Ward. Popping our heads to the door, the switchboard operator told us that no one had been in or out of the door for hours. Mike finished his cigarette and suggested we follow these footprints and see where they led. As we followed, the prints turned off uh, across the car park where there were wooden huts housing the tailors and seamstress. From memory, an old charge nurse, Simphy Roberts, was in charge of the tailors. There were patients in all of the workshops across the hospital, mostly overseen by near-to-retirement nurses. Simphy's wife, Sister Maud, was in charge of male four. I went to get a pair of trousers hemmed when I was in male three and remember Simphy taking the garment off me. There were three elderly male patients with him. The root of the fire, uh, excuse me, the root of the footprints now passed by the huts and carried on through a gap in a wall where a gate once hung. We came upon an archway, and on one walking underneath, we arrived at the number seven block. This block was made up of two wards, 7A, the ground floor, and 7B, the first floor. The prints continued until they reached a door leading to 7B. Mike reached into his gray suit pocket for his pass key in order to unlock the door and gain entry. But we looked at each other, as something was truly amiss. He scratched his balding head. I pushed my hands deeper into my trouser pockets and chewed on my lower lip. The door lock had been blocked up by a piece of wood, and by the look of things, it had been blocked off for a number of years. We looked to see if the footsteps had continued onwards, but they finished here. Behind us were three sets, mine, Mike's, and who knows. These footsteps had finished at a door that would never, ever be opened again. We now retraced our footsteps and made our way through the corridors down to 7B. There's a sort of anteroom or foyer before the main door of 7B. We were now at the other side of the door to where the footsteps led us. The keyhole was also blocked off. We were never able to rationally explain it. And that's where I'll end this series on Denby Asylum. There are far more stories to tell about this hospital, but I hope this series gives you an introduction to what life was like for staff and patients. And again, the two spooky stories I just told are taken from the book, 
ghost stories from the North Wales Asylum, Tales and Legends from the North Wales Hospital in Denby, written by Peter Glynn. Um, I was able to get a Kindle copy for about five bucks. So it's inexpensive and it's a quick read. Um, I encourage you to check it out. Also, be on the lookout for a new book by Cloed Wen about the history of the hospital. Uh, You could set a Google alert for his name if that would be helpful. And again, it's spelled just like it sounds. uh, uh, C-L-W-Y-D-W-Y-N-N-E. So thank you so much to everybody listening in Wales and for bearing with me through my uh, Welsh pronunciation attempts. Thank you for your kindness and allowing me to participate in the various Facebook groups to share these episodes. This has been a really fun series. Um, I hope to come back to Wales even just through the show in the future. So as always, thank you to everyone who has listened. Thanks to those of you who have joined the Facebook group and Instagram page. Please, please, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. If you like this episode, check out my Beacons page to find ways to support the show. You can support monthly starting at $3 per month, or you can check out the feature on the Beacons page called Buy Me a Coffee and send a one-time gift starting at $3. So it all goes to the show and keeping it going. So next week, we'll start a new series at another non-U.S. hospital. This time we're going down under. Aussies, I'm so sorry. You're up next for my terrible accents and pronunciations, but I'm excited for what we will all learn together. So stay tuned for that. And as always, do the best you can until you know better. And then when you know better, do better. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening to Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. Once again, I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Gallup. Cover image is by Christopher Payne. Check out my website at behindthewallspodcast.buzzsprout.com. Follow the podcast and learn more on Facebook at Behind the Walls Podcast and Instagram at Behind the Walls Pod. For questions or recommendations, email me at behindthewallspodcast at gmail.com. You can find new episodes every Monday on Amazon Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find and listen to the show, and I would be so grateful. Please stay tuned for more episodes of Behind the Walls of the World Psychiatric Hospitals. Until next time.